Well, welcome to The Future Strategist. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Max Moore. Uh, Max is the president and CEO of Alcor. Alcor is a cryonics provider, and I have been a member myself of Alcor for many years. Um, welcome, Max. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Um, could you briefly describe to our listeners um, what cryonics is and what you hope to accomplish with cryonics? Well, I think of cryonics as essentially an extension of emergency medicine. I like to use an analogy that if you will go back about 50 years or so, say around 1960, and you're walking around town and somebody in front of you just fell over and you check their pulse, and there's no pulse, there's no breathing. Back then we would have said, oh, this person's dead. And we would have taken them off and had them buried or cremated. Today, we don't consider them to be dead. Our criteria have changed. Instead, we'll do CPR and defibrillation various other things, and in most cases, um, resuscitate them. So you have to think, well, when people said you, you were dead 50 years ago, were you? Well, obviously not by today's standards. So we have a kind of a similar view that when someone is declared legally or even clinically dead today, they really aren't. Uh, if you don't do something to stabilize them pretty quickly, they're going to get dead, <laughs> but they're really not. You're not really truly dead until the structure of your brain that preserves your memories and your personality has deteriorated past the point beyond which any reasonable, reasonably foreseeable technology could reconstruct it. So the idea of cryonics really is that, first of all, you don't want to die. Nobody wants to be cryopreserved, but sometimes you know it's going to be necessary, so it's a last resort. So what we do is when today's medicine gives up and they say, I declare you to be legally dead, what they're really saying is, not even that I couldn't revive you, because often they could, and often as a do not resuscitate order, because it's kind of pointless, but they could. They're really saying, I've reached the limits of today's medical technology and abilities. And our point is, well, yes, but that changes over time. So turn the patient over to us. We're going to stabilize them. We're going to protect the cells, and then we're going to remove the blood and body fluids, replace it with a cryoprotective solution so to eliminate ice formation. And then we're going to store them at extremely cold temperatures, minus 320 Fahrenheit, and at that temperature, there's no biochemical activity whatsoever, and they can wait 50, 75, 100 years, however long it takes to be able to reverse the cause of death as we think of it today, and in, indeed the aging process itself, and bring that person back, just like they've been in a, in, a, in a long coma, essentially, except with no metabolism, and let them carry on living their lives. Does the cryoproductive agent do any harm to the brain? Uh, it does have a certain amount of toxicity. There's a trade-off between cryoprotectant toxicity and uh, removal of ice crystal formation. It's definitely very much in favor of using the cryoprotectant, but over time we have managed to improve that formulation. Uh, when I say we, uh, the, the one we currently use, we, don't, we didn't create that one. We license it from uh, an organization in California that's working on cryopreserving whole organs for, um, you know, for transplant, and that's the least toxic one that there is. Um, but when I say toxic, you know, people think, oh, toxic, well, you know, that's, that's not reversible. But lots of toxicity is reversible. It really means you're just going to have to adjust the chemical balance in the cells. It's very much better than having your membranes damaged by uh, ice crystals. Not that the ice crystals will destroy the cells entirely. There's a lot of misinformation on that point. Uh, it's kind of sad that even people like Michio Kaku, who should know better, uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a, a physicist who has a popular series of books and TV series and likes to pontificate on a wide range of topics, not all of which he's an expert on. And he did a YouTube video on cryonics, which I, I, had, I rebutted. Uh, and he repeated that the common myth that when you take someone down to a very cold temperature, ice forms inside the cells and expands and essentially destroys, obliterates the cells. That's not at all what happens. In fact, even if we didn't cryoprotect the patients, which we do, um, ice would um, form outside the cells. The cells would dehydrate and it would form outside the cells. That wouldn't blow them up, but it would do a lot of damage and require more advanced repair technology. So those patients probably are still revivable, but it's going to take a more advanced technology and they're going to have to stay cryopreserved for longer. Um, how long after a patient dies do you, you think you have to, to cryopreserve them before the brain is irrevocably lost? That is a really tough question to answer, but it is really not answerable at this point. Um, one, one quick point I have to make is that we don't make that decision. We leave that decision up to our members. So when someone is signing up and going through the paperwork, one of the questions is, under what conditions do you want us to not proceed with this? What if it's 12 hours or 24 hours or 48 hours? 
room temperature or what if we can only find part of your brain or what if you've been autopsy we leave that open to our members to decide when the cutoff is and because we don't really know what could be reconstructed most people would say just do the best you can with whatever's left uh, however there are some points we can uh, point to some lines somewhere around 20 24 hours well, it can extend out depending on the conditions but some, usually somewhere around that point, the blood-brain barrier will start to break down. And we find that um, unless there's been a, you know, early cooling early on, uh, at that point, it may be difficult to cryopreserve the brain, to cryoprotect the brain, I'm sorry. Um, so you make a little ice crystal formation. So we really, really prefer to get our patients here in under that time frame. And in most cases, we, we do. Usually we have a, a team of people standing by at the bedside I think in you know, something like 80% of cases, uh, that's been the case. And in fact, we, we strongly encourage people to relocate to the Scottsdale area if they know they're terminal, because we have a great relationship with the local hospital and hospice, and they'll let us have our equipment right next door in the next room, and we can start within seconds of legal death being declared. So I, I guess most people who die, they know they're going to die at least a few days in advance, so they, if they're members, they can make arrangements. Usually that's the case, yeah. And one thing we're looking to do, um, I mean, one, one big fear for some people, if you live alone and you're old, and especially if you have something like you know, a heart, heart, heart problems, which can be a lot more unpredictable. Cancer's actually, <laughs> it sounds kind of odd to say, but cancer is a good thing to die of for a cryonicist because it's very predictable. We know, you know when you're in decline, when things are getting bad, and we can be there. If you have a sudden heart attack, that could be a problem. So one thing I'm looking to do um, is find a medical, essentially a vital signs monitor, much like you know the Fitbit devices we're wearing now, but that would monitor your, your vital signs, and if they stop for a certain period of time, would send out an emergency message to our emergency service, along with a GPS location, and we could get people there as quickly as possible to minimize that problem. And of course, some people will die in car accidents. Uh, some people will die in, in, under conditions where the medical examiner may insist on an autopsy, all we can do then is try to get an injunction. Uh, we can try to minimize how invasive that is. Quite often now they'll do a virtual autopsy where instead of cutting up your brain, they'll just do a CT scan and look for toxins in your blood. I, on Facebook, someone was mentioning that if, if someone uses their cell phone every day, you could have some program where if you don't use the cell phone, it first sends you an email saying, are you okay? And if there's no response, then it could contact somebody. Yes, yeah, I think I saw that. Um, I guess the question there is, you know, what, what's the reasonable frequency <laughs> and who is going to check on that? Uh, but, you know, that's one possibility. I think it'd be better to have something you could actually wear on you and would send out, you know, when you knew your vital signs were off, uh, it would send out the emergency signal. There'll still be the problem of false positives, um, you know, because that could be quite overwhelming if you have lots of members and we're getting a lot of false positives. So there's no perfect solution, but I think there are ways that we can minimize the risk of you. You know, dying in bad bad situations, dying in today's sense. Mm -hmm. How much does chronics cost? It costs rather less than people think. Um, I'm just going to talk about alcohol prices. So there's really two components to the cost. There are membership dues, and then there's the cryopreservation fee. Now, the cryopreservation fee, that depends on how much of you you want to cryopreserve. But half of our members want to cryopreserve their entire body, and so the minimum cost for that is $200,000. And people are saying, oh my goodness, $200,000, that's a lot. That's, that's just for rich people. What they don't realize is that the vast majority of our members fund that through life insurance. And you know, so long as you're not too old and don't already have a bad condition, that can be quite a modest cost. Um, for people who just want to preserve the really important stuff, the brain, that includes myself, I've chosen this option. Uh, for a neuropreservation, that's only $80,000. And if you look at the cost of major surgery, that is really not very much money. Uh, to get a you know, heart transplant or a kidney transplant costs a lot more than that. This covers the cost of everything, basically. Us sending out a team to wherever you are, doing the standby, uh, all the medications, the surgery, and permanent storage. The idea is that we take a big chunk of that money and put it into the patient care trust fund, and that's invested in such a way that it will never run out. We invest it very conservatively, and in fact, we've never drawn down on the principal. Uh, so that's growing quite nicely. So it should build up and, and leave us with a lot of money to pay for possible revival. So that's, that's one cost. The um, other cost really is the membership dues. Um, and that's about 525 a year, assuming you're not paying the CMS fee, which stands for Comprehensive Member Standby. That's basically the fund that lets us build or afford to send a team across the country. 
Now, younger people can easily avoid paying that 180 by just adding $20,000 to their funding. And if you have life insurance, that extra 20,000 is pretty much nothing. Uh, so 525 is the basic membership fee. And I like to put this all together. And if you, you know, combine the insurance and the membership rates, uh, for someone who's not you know, a male in their mid-30s in reasonable health, that's going to cost you about the same as going to Starbucks and getting a grande cappuccino once a day. So it's, it's, you know, it's within the range of most people. And do you use the same technique to preserve just the brain as compared to the whole body? Yeah, it's essentially the same. There's minor differences. Obviously, the surgical procedure is a little different. With a whole body patient, we'll do what looks like a median stenotomy. We're opening up the chest, accessing the major blood vessels of the heart, and we're circulating the cryoprotectant that way. With a neuropatient, we're going to do the neuroseparation, and then we're going to access the carotids and instead do the blood washout and cryoprotection that way. We also use a slightly different formulation of the cryoprotectant for neuropatients. It needs one less component than for a whole body patient. We found that with whole body patients, um, we can get massive swelling or edema uh, without a special ingredient. That's not needed in the case of neuropatients. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same. The perfusion takes about the same amount of time. Um, everything else is very much the same. Can you do a better job of preserving the brain if you just preserve the brain compared to if you do whole body? Well, that's a bit of a controversial question. You'll get different answers. Um, I would say, from my point of view, from what I've observed, and I've observed, I don't know, probably about 40, 40 cryopreservations by now, I would say the answer is, on average, yes. Uh, there are several reasons for that. Uh, some of them are surgical, some of them are logistic. Um, one is that if you want to if you want to protect one organ, the brain in particular, then really you want to optimize for that organ. That's the most important thing. If you're trying to take care of the whole body, then you, know, you may not optimize the brain, or it may take longer. Uh, but we also run into practical problems. We've had people, for instance, who haven't given us their medical histories ahead of time, and we've tried to go in through the chest only to find that they've had multiple chest surgeries, and they've got wires and sutures and metal plates and God knows what in there, and it becomes impossible to cryoprotect the whole body, and then we have to switch anyway to a neuroprotection, and we've wasted time in the meantime. Um, there's also actually a logistical issue, which is probably even more important. In many states, which includes California, includes Florida, where we, both states where we have a lot of members, uh, the law requires that we have to get the health department to sign a transit permit before we're allowed to move a patient out of the state. Now, that only applies to whole body patients. Now imagine that you die, you know, in today's clinical legal sense on a Friday afternoon. That's bad news because that means that unless we get really lucky with a cooperative person who wants to give us their private number over the weekend, which has happened, um, you're going to be stuck there till Monday sitting on ice. And that's not good. That's going to slow down the deterioration, but that's really not good. Now, if you're a neuropatient, we can actually do a local neuroseparation. And because the brain is considered essentially an organ donation, or a tissue sample, we can get that out of the state without waiting for the transit permit. So that's kind of a practical consideration that can make a lot of difference. Have you considered giving an option to whole body people where they could say you have discretion to switch to neuro if these logistical issues come up? Yes, yes, they do in fact have that option. And I'd highly recommend <laughs> exercising that option, yes. Okay, I'm whole body myself. I don't know if I've signed on that and I'll have to check. And if I, if okay. I haven't given you permission, I'll have to change on that. How many... Um, Oh, sorry. I think, I think actually by default we have that permission. Unless someone says otherwise, I think it actually says to, that we can use our judgment. So if we know that someone's going to be sitting around for three days, you know, deteriorating, whereas we can get someone out instantly, we can actually do that. Unless someone has specifically told us not to do that, you know, that they really don't like the idea of the separation that strongly. Okay, excellent. How many members do you have? Uh, as of right now, uh, I think we have... Uh, it might be one or two off, but about 1,080 members. And by members, I mean people with full arrangements to be cryopreserved. Uh, I say that because some other organizations count a lot of other people in their membership figures. We have about twice as many as any other organization right now. That, I mean, that number, it, it strikes me as being really small. I mean, I can understand how most people wouldn't want to do cryonics, you know, part because of religion. But I would think at least, you know, 1% or one-tenth of 1% of middle class and rich Americans would. I, yes, you think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. I, I, uh, it's so bizarre. I, I gave a talk um, at Bill a few years ago, uh, titled, I think it was, uh, Join the 0.00002%. <laughs> I tried to make it a virtue out of the uh, 
uh, uncommonality of this. It is very bizarre. Um, you can find all kinds of completely crazy beliefs out there which have no scientific evidence to support them whatsoever, and they have more people yeah. who support the cryonics. So it's kind of a bit baffling. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons for this, one of which is that we're too honest for our own good, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, I believe it's critical for us to be very honest and transparent, but that means that we have to tell people that, look, this might not work. We can't guarantee anything. We, we may not get cryobreserve in the first place. Conditions may be suboptimal. We can't guarantee that technologies will be developed, even though we think that's plausible. Uh, the organization could get shut down. I mean, there's all these things that are uncertainties, and people don't want to hear that. <laughs> they want to hear either that when you die, yeah, you're going to go to this wonderful place and float around on clouds and have a great time forever, guaranteed. Or if they are atheists, they want to just kind of put out of their minds and say, okay, I know what's going to happen. I'll be gone. There's nothing to worry about. The uncertainty of cryonics is really hard for people to handle. They don't want to be uncertain about something as, as, as deep and troubling as this. And I think that's a core problem. I think the second big problem really is that it's, it's such an unfamiliar idea that anybody thinking about doing this is going to think, you know, except in unusual cases, are going to think, oh, my goodness, what's my spouse going to think? What my friends think? Uh, what my family going to say about this? I think this is nutty and you know, give me a hard time. And that's a very strong motivator for most people. And I think the people who do actually sign up tend to be a little bit more independent-minded and more rational and, and think, well, you know, yes, that, ha that has an effect on me, but surviving <laughs> really is more important. But one day we're going to get to the point where it won't be so unfamiliar. And I think we're getting there quite fast right now. We're seeing more and more positive media stories, uh, research results. And so more and more people are hearing about this. And I, I think at some point that factor will go away enough that we may see a sort of a tipping point where suddenly that barrier goes away and far more people are willing to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can advertise as something that, you know, it's, it's sort of an, in some ways it's an IQ test. Are you smart enough to be one of the elite that are going to take this chance and have a chance of living for a very long time? Yeah, yeah, of course, we already get accused of being elitist as it is, uh, often because people misunderstand the costs of it, but uh, but that could work. That, that's kind of a typical marketing approach, right? The, the sort of the scarcity thing, or you're not really, you have to prove yourself to us before we take you on as a member. Uh, but that, yeah, that could work. I remember I have a funny story. I, sometimes I, in my last inter, inter, introductory microeconomics class, I bring up cryonics. I say, you know, we've been talking about economic growth and how markets can do great things. And I say, if you really believe that, you should consider signing up for cryonics because it will preserve you to a future time. And I remember one student came back to me the next semester, and she said, you know, when you said that, I thought you were joking, but I read in a newspaper, cryonics is a real thing. I can't believe it. So I didn't even convince students that this thing was real. That's how bad a job I did trying to convince them to sign up for it. It's tough, yeah. I would, uh, I would have to make a recommendation. Um, I mean, Alcor has a fantastic website, and I encourage anybody listening to, to look it over, but it may be a little overwhelming. Um, you know, we've been putting out the magazine for decades. We have a huge library. We've got a massive F FAQ. We also have a YouTube channel for those who prefer videos where I've kind of converted a lot of the FAQs into videos. But if there's one thing people should read, um, it's a, a blog by Tim Urban, uh, who's a fantastic writer and has written an interesting series on, on Singularity, on Elon Musk, on a whole bunch of different topics. But about a month ago, he wrote uh, – his blog is called Wait But Why – he wrote a very long-form blog piece, and it has probably had more effect on people than anything else I can think of. We've had numerous applications, uh, inquiries of interest, who've mentioned that. He, he kind of starts off with the, the typical view of cryonics and how it's misconceived, and he takes it apart bit by bit in a really beautiful way. And by the time you get to the end, it's pretty hard, to, <laughs> it's pretty hard not to say, yeah, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. but that's what the piece is called, Why Cryonics Makes Sense. Okay. Yeah, I'll try to link to that in the notes to this. What's the best argument you, you, you've used that can convince you know, a scientifically literate, let's say, atheist to sign up for cryonics? Well, you know, there's no way of convincing some people because they have this worldview where they're essentially suicidal. I mean, they, you know, they're not going to kill themselves tomorrow, but they're really just waiting for nature to do it for them. And they rationalize that and say, oh, but it's natural. You know, death is natural and part of the natural cycle. And what about overpopulation? And won't life get meaningless? And all these idiotic rationalizations that <laughs> really are rationalizations. And I think it's very, very hard to convince anybody who starts off with that worldview. So really, we only have a chance with someone who starts off with the view that basically life is good. 
and having more life is good and not being cut off from your projects and loved ones you know just by a random accident of nature is a good it's good to better stop that and also people who think that the future is probably going to be a pretty good place uh it's it's very sad how the vast majority of people think the future is going to be some awful place where you know terminators are hunting down the humans or uh we've destroyed the environment or this or that whereas Really, you know, inductively, the most plausible scenario is the world's going to be better than it is today, because today it's better than it was 50 years ago, and 50 years ago is better than it was 500 years ago, and so on. You know, we do create problems, but we solve more problems than we create. We're wealthier now than ever. We, are, we live longer than ever. We have a more peaceful world than ever. Nobody believes that because they read too many newspapers. <laughs> so any world that you come back in has to be one that has the technology and, and the will to revive you. So if it's if the world has fallen apart, you don't want to come back anyway. So I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, and I look at it that if in a bad world, they don't bother to bring us back. Exactly. So even if there's a fifty percent chance the world will be horrible, that fifty percent chance I've you know wasted a bit of money, but in the fifty percent chance it's good, that's the world I get brought back in. So exactly, and these ridiculous scenarios that well they might use you for spare parts. I mean that's just idiotic. So yeah, they're gonna they're gonna have to. Go through complex process of repairing the cells and you know taking them out and trying to find a tissue match when they could just grow a new one, which we're already starting to do today. I mean, it's, it's a ludicrous scenario. Yeah. And there are billions of alive. There'll be billions of alive people. If you want to take organs, you're going to go to them first. If you're you know right. amoral, right? Um, I'm sure you've been following the news on on the new technology, possible technology of sort of plastic. I think it was plasticization where you you. You use, I know you don't have to freeze organs, but you can turn them sort of into a plastic, and people are thinking you might be able to do that with brains. Yeah, yeah. Well, well plastination really plastination. refers to uh, uh, the work of this, this European artist who wasn't trying to preserve structure. So it's really chemical preservation. Um, there was interesting results uh, that came out last year. In fact, Robert McIntyre, who's the lead researcher, gave a talk at the Alcohol Conference last year on this. Uh, this was essentially a combination of cryopreservation with chemical fixation, which he called aldehyde-stabilized cryopreservation. And his goal was was not to produce a method that would be actually suitable for use today. His goal was to win the Brain Preservation Foundation Prize. And to do that, what he had to do was to be able to um, cryopreserve brain tissue and produce electron microscope images that showed how well it was preserved, and he succeeded in that. He did a beautiful job. Uh, what normally happens in a cryopreservation procedure is a lot of dehydration occurs, and because of that, it's very hard to image the neurons because it's all compressed and there's not enough light in there. That doesn't mean the structures aren't there, just that we can't show these, these beautiful pictures for the most part. But Robert produced these amazing images showing how everything was intact. Uh, all all the, the neurons were there, all the neural connections were there. Uh, everything was there. However, by doing that, by using the aldehyde fixation, he essentially made it irreversible or much, much harder to reverse that. So that isn't, and he, he himself didn't say that this is something cryonics organization should be doing, but we are very interested in parts of his research. For instance, he's looking at blood-brain barrier openers so that we might be able to prevent the brain dehydration and produce just as good a cryopreservation while also being able to show to everybody in the world that look, look how beautiful this looks, look how well we're preserving the brain. Now they can't possibly say that you're destroying the brain doing this. Yeah, a lot of people object to chronic saying, yeah, you're, you're losing critical information, that there's things in the brain that the preservation techniques will destroy. Yeah, and there's, there's really no evidence for that. I mean, you know, you know we've, we've cryopreserved kidneys successfully and, um, and brought those back and implanted them, and that's worked. We actually, at Alcor, uh, was this last year, I guess, or the year before, we cryopreserved uh, C. elegans, a little tiny microscopic worm that's been studied you know, by lots and lots of scientists. Its entire genome and neural system has been mapped. And it's a very simple organism, but we were able to uh, teach it a very simple task about where to find food by following chemical gradients. We then cryopreserved it and held it there for a while, brought it back, and tested it, and we found that it retained its memory. So, you know, even though it's a tiny little creature, that was some proof of concept. Plus, the fact is that, you know, the electron microscope studies we do have, and sometimes we can get decent images, do show that everything seems to be intact. There's no reason to think anything crucial is being lost. The only thing we know is lost is short-term memory, because that's electrochemical in nature. 
But that's no different than when you, you know, go in for anesthesia in surgery. You're not going to remember the last few minutes because it hasn't, hasn't formed new physical structures in the brain yet. But apart from that, there's really no reason to think anything is critically lost. If someone dies and is um, preserved in an ideal way, everything goes right on your end, how long do you think it would be before we'd have the technology to bring that person back? Let's assume they died of a heart attack, it was known, and you, you, you now have a fix for that heart attack. Oh goodness, yeah, that's a question I always get asked, and I have to, I have to really say I haven't, I haven't much of a clue because uh, <laughs> the history of predictions of any kind of breakthrough have you know very poor history. Uh, nobody gets it right, so I'm going to give you a very vague answer on that. I'd say I'd be very surprised if it's less than 50 years, and I'd be very surprised if it's more than 150. So I'm going to ballpark around 100 years. But I could be way off. It could be that, um, you know, you, you've written about the singularity, Ray yeah. Kurzweil, Werner Vinge. If, if we develop a super intelligent AI that can solve all our technical problems really, really fast, it could be that it could be a lot sooner than that. So there's just too many unknowns. Uh, what we do have to do is, yeah, we have to fix whatever whatever's the problem, the heart disease, the cancer. We want to fix the aging process. There's no point bringing you back old. We want to bring you back in a fresh, vital, healthy body. Uh, we've got to fix 100 billion neurons, um, and you know all of that to do. So I don't think it's going to happen in the next couple of decades. But uh, beyond that, I really, I just can't really say. I think, again, if I could say, if I could say to people, yes, we'll bring you back, you know, May 2nd, 2083 for sure. <laughs> we'd probably get a lot more people signing up because they'd, they'd be happy that they have a nice certain answer. But all I can say is that we really don't know. How confident are you that Alcor can survive, you know, 50 or 100 years? I mean, most, most small organizations aren't able to do that. Well, we've already survived for 44 years, which a lot of people may not realize. We were founded in 1972. So we already have a pretty good track record and we're stronger than ever. Um, we're set up as a 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit organization. We don't have to worry about satisfying you know, short-term shareholder returns. We can think about the long term. Uh, everything about the organization is structured to think about the long term, from the way our board of, of directors works to uh, the Patient Care Trust, which is unique to Alcor. Um, the Patient Care Trust really is what keeps will keep patients cryopreserved, even if the rest of Alcor were to go away somehow. Um, it's managed by a separate board of trustees, two-thirds of whom have to have a loved one who's being cryopreserved, so they have a very personal stake in this. Um, so, you know, and again, with a very conservative investment strategy, so, again, no guarantees, but um, that is the goal, to manage for the long term, to be you know, financially conservative, to make sure that we're really covering the costs and not just hoping that the future can fix everything for free, which I think is the attitude of maybe some other organizations and I uh, think they can charge a lot less. But, um, you know, I think we're very, very solid. I actually did some research on this for a talk I gave in, in Germany a year or so ago, and you're absolutely right, the number of Commercial organizations that live for more than 100 years is very small. Um, there are some exceptions. There was a Japanese company that lasted for, I think, 14 centuries until it was finally absorbed by another one. Uh, but with nonprofit organizations, you can think about, I mean, I went to university, second oldest one in the world, Oxford University. That, that's been going for uh, half a, a millennium. Um, of course, the Catholic Church, some religious organizations, educational organizations. So that's why we were set up as a nonprofit, because those seem to have better endurance. Um, so I, you know, I'm fairly confident we can make it, but it does require planning, and we spend a lot of time thinking about that, resilience. Uh, one objection people have raised with me is that they'd say, well, why, why is the future going to want to bring you back? Yeah, again, that's, a, that's kind of a funny question because it's, it's, a, it's a question based on a misconception. Uh, the world doesn't need to want to bring you back because the world isn't going to bring you back. We're going to bring you back. It's part of Alcor's mission, not just to keep you prior preserved, but to bring you back and to bring back the loved ones we have in there. And hopefully, you know, when I'm in there, people who come after me who like me will bring me back. So there's not only a contractual obligation there, but that's our mission. And, you know, we have kind of a chain of generations of people who want to bring people back. So, and I think, you know, when it becomes provably possible to bring people back, if we didn't do so, I think we get in trouble with the law because they say, look, you've been given this money to do this and you're not doing it. Why not? So we don't we don't require the rest of society to do anything. They don't have to pay for anything. They don't have to do anything at all. Obviously, we're going to benefit from general technological developments. But it's kind of a this idea that you have to 
be worth bringing back or why would anybody bother to bring you back is, is just a misconception. We're going to bring you back. Have you given any thought to what you're going to do when you bring people back? Like who will first talk with them? I mean, sometimes I imagine if, you know, if I were to die in my sleep, my wife calls Alcor, I would just notice that, whoa, I'm waking up, you know, no time would have passed from what I, from my perspective, from when I went to bed and from when I wake up to wherever you'd have me. Have you thought about how you'll handle that kind of situation? Yes. Again, it's part of our mission statement, not only to, to um, revive people when possible, but to reintegrate them, rehabilitate and reintegrate them. So I would imagine you know, by the time that becomes possible, I'm pretty sure cryonics is going to be a lot more popular. And in fact, I think it will become standard. So I would imagine that there would be a whole profession of people, kind of a combination of social worker, you know, personal life planner, education specialist or whatever, who would help you to get reintegrated. And you know, this, is, this is speculative, but I, would, I think a fairly plausible scenario is that before you were actually brought brought back physically to walk around in the world that you might understand very well, you probably spend some time in a training VR simulation so that you know not to step in front of the, the, the rocket cars or, yes. you know, whatever. Um, so you get used to the world. Maybe it was easier, you know, Ray would say, you just better plug a chip in your brain and catch up on all the world's knowledge. I don't, maybe, that'd be nice, but um, it'll be an adjustment period. But look, I've, I've, uh, I always like to half joke, I made the move from England to Southern California, and that was you know, pretty radically different. Other people have made much bigger jumps. They've moved from uh, Aboriginal Australia to New York City, uh, or they've you know, survived the uh, Nazi death camps and um, you know, moved on to create businesses that have been very successful and families. We can be pretty adaptable, and if you've planned for this, you're the kind of person who wants to do this, you've got some sense of adventure. I don't think it's going to be a big problem. It's going to be some adjustment period, but it's also going to be amazingly exciting. Like you said, you wake up, and you think, hey, what year is it? Oh, it's 2092. I made it. Fantastic. <laughs> and you're going to throw a party with, with the friends who've come, you know, come along with you. Um, I should also make the point that quite a few members who sign up as families, and we're having more and more people do that, put in their preferences that uh, please don't revive me until you can revive my spouse or my children or my, my parents. So you know, people often worry about coming back alone. Well, first of all, you don't have to be alone. There's lots of us. You can get to know us. <laughs> Some of us you're going to like. Um, but, yeah, you can you can bring your friends and family with you, so you won't be alone either, and that should help. I know, I know that some members of Alcor think they're most likely to be brought back, essentially, as computer programs, that the, first, the earliest technology will be we could scan the preserved brain and then translate that into a computer program. Do you think that's a plausible method of revival? Uh, speaking personally, I think it's plausible. I don't know whether that's what will happen first. Again, I think that's really hard to say. So some, some people some people kind of present as if it's an opposition. You, either you do cryonics or you have your brain chemically preserved and scanned and uploaded. That's a false dichotomy because, of course, you can do the uploading from, from a cryonics patient too. So that, that's not really the difference. So whether we have biological revival first, I don't know. Now, some of our members... Quite a few of our members, because of philosophical views, are not convinced that would be them. They think it's going to be a software copy of them and that they wouldn't really have survived. And so to them, that's not an acceptable method of revival, and they can put that in their, in their paperwork. Um, now, I'm not one of those people. I, I personally, you know, I'm a good hardcore functionalist and always have been. I believe, basically, I'm not really my brain. I'm really what my brain does. And if you can replicate that in some other, uh, some other different hardware, uh, even if it's distributed, um, that's me. As long as it has my memories, my personality, uh, I've continued in that sense, then in every sense that matters, I've survived. So I personally would not have a problem with coming back in that form. Okay. Um, imagine things do go very well for Alcor <laughs> and it, it becomes standard. You know, you get millions of members. Over the long run, what could you get down the price to? I mean, if this was, a, you know, if you had a million members, what would be the marginal cost to you of having one more person? That's a good question. Um, there's much, well, again, when I, you know, earlier on I was saying there's two kinds of costs here, and I think it would affect those two costs differently. The, the, uh, the storage, well, storage cost is a part of the preservation fee. I think that would go down with economies of scale. In fact, we're already working on that now. We have a, a new Dewar design. Uh, our our Dewars, for those who don't know, are essentially extremely large, expensive thermos flasks where we store our patients. Um, those... There used to be one or two patients, and now we use the Bigfoot duos that have four patients. 
we now have a design for a seven-patient dewar that we're just about to start testing. And that actually would reduce the liquid nitrogen boil-off by, uh, I think, about 70%. So that costs uh, cut, cuts down our cost quite a bit. Um, obviously, there's other kinds of uh, economies of scale. In terms of membership, we're already seeing some uh, benefits to growth. And if we grew faster, we'd see more of them. Uh, since I started five years ago, um, you know, membership dues were about $100 a year more than they are now. So every year I go to the board and I say, I want to reduce membership dues. And I have to struggle a little bit and we argue about the numbers and how much we can do it. But as we grow, we don't have to grow staff as much as we do membership. So I think that's on a declining course. And I, I do think one day we will actually abolish membership dues entirely. It'll just be part of the car preservation fee because we'll have enough cases to pay for it. Right now, that's not possible. So I think, yeah, membership dues will go down and down, probably go away completely. Uh, we should see, I think, you know, at least below inflation increases in the price of cryopreservation. Uh, Ralph Merkel wrote a piece in a issue of the magazine uh, maybe a year ago, maybe less. Um, I forget the title. It was something like something to do with giant big-ass cryonics. It was well, cryonics for everyone. He, he actually thought about that. What if we had millions of people? What could you do? Um, there are companies that have these vast tanks of liquid, liquid fuels um, and you know much lower per unit storage costs. It would require some technical innovations, but he had some numbers in there. You could drive down the cost quite a lot. Um, I know that cryonics is a lot more popular among men than women. What is the breakdown in, among your members? Um, let's see. I could actually try to pull up the exact numbers, but it's pretty much... I think about two-thirds male, one-third female, maybe slightly more females than that. It's been shifting a little bit towards more balance. Um, but, yeah, it tends to be a little bit more male than female. Uh, we tend to have a lot of people in the uh, in the computer profession, either programmers, software or hardware, computer people. I think that's probably because they're used to thinking of problems as hackable. And the body is essentially a very complex set of machines within machines. And so when they look at that, most people just kind of throw their hands up. But uh, computer people say, oh, that's that's a hackable problem. So we can fix that. We just need the right tools. So we get a lot of people in the computer area. Um, I'm not going to speculate whether more men than women, but uh, you know, some people have suggested there's evolutionary reasons for that. Men are the ones who go out there and sort of do the, the risky new things where the women protect the family at home. <laughs> I don't know if this, whether that's good logic or not, but... Uh, we definitely find so far more men than women. But again, more and more families are signing up together, which is good. And, and you, do you give a family discount? Yes. Yeah. So for the, uh, the first, second family member is about a 50% discount. Um, and then I think also for students uh, up to the age of 25, there's a big discount. And then for minor family members, it's like a 75% discount, I think, for the first couple. And then nothing zero after that. Uh, what's the age profile of most of your new members? Do you get a lot of people who are know they're going to die in a few years signing up, or is it mostly young people? Uh, we've had recently. I think we've tended to have more young people. Uh, the average age of our members is about forty-eight, because that includes you know recent people and long-term members. Um, but yeah, we've had we've had more young people sign up lately. Uh, but quite a few people in their 40s signing up to 40s and 50s varies quite a bit. Do you have any famous members who are open about their membership? But actually, sorry, I can actually answer your question more exactly if I have the numbers here. So um, let's see. Yeah, 800. And, oh, a bit more than I thought. 806 males, 220 females, uh, 84 couples. So, yeah, and then the age range is uh, our youngest patient is two years old, and the oldest is 101. So, sorry, uh, what was your question? Um, uh, do you have any famous members who are open about your membership? Open about their membership? Yeah, that's the question. Is uh, when people sign up, they get to specify whether they're private or public. So. We may have famous members who I can't say. <laughs> um, Can you say, do you have famous people that, without giving their names, who you you can't say? Yeah. yeah. Well, then people start digging for who. <laughs> well, I can. There are. There's a couple of kind of semi-private members who um, they're in the press, and you can find that they're members, but they like to keep it fairly quiet. So 
Uh, but I, I think I could mention at least one of them. This is, is public enough. That's uh, Ed Thorpe, who wrote the book Beat the Dealer. He's a, a mathematician uh, from UC Irvine who basically uh, went to casinos using this this device he'd made and his counting method and made a lot, a lot of money and <laughs> did very well. Um, he's, he's quite unknown in certain circles. Uh, of, a, of um, existing living members who is now public, he wasn't until a year or two ago, um, especially in the Silicon Valley area, people will be familiar with Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not surprising, a lot of people probably assumed he was a member, and, but uh, he wouldn't let us say so until he came out in, in the public not too long ago. So, uh, yeah, Peter Thiel. Um, I'm not sure who else we count as famous who's public. So um, Ray Kurzweil is also. Oh, yeah, of course, Ray Kurzweil, uh, now chief engineer at Google, is a public member. Yeah. Um, Aubrey de Grey, who you know, anybody in anti-aging circles would consider him famous. He's at his membership as well. That's his backup option. Yeah, that really should be a powerful argument for chronics. I mean, there are people who are very, very sophisticated understanding of technological progress. And this should, this should be assigned to a lot of people who don't want to die that, you know, if someone like Peter Thiel thinks it's worth it to be associated with Alcor, they should probably too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, actually, I think the day after the story came out where Thiel talked about it for the first time publicly, we got we got a call from someone who said, I think Peter Thiel's a genius. If he thinks this is a good idea, I want to do it too. <laughs> but I was surprised there weren't more of those. Um, again, I think you know, it's, it's up to us to keep making the arguments, keep making it familiar, and to make it easier to sign up. It's not that easy a process. You know, there's a bunch of contracts and the funding to arrange and so on. So I think we need to continue to work at uh, simplifying the process. Mm-hmm. How long does it usually take for someone to get membership once they've started the process? Well, it kind of depends. If they're, if they're, going, if they're paying with life insurance, as most people do, then that's usually the, the slowest part, and that can take you know, maybe a couple of months. I think you can sometimes get it done in a month. Uh, if they actually are you know, reasonably well off and just want to prepay or already have a trust set up, then you can actually do the paperwork in a day. I mean, we've had people do that. We've had people come here. Um, just sit down for a couple of hours, just go through the paperwork, we bring in witnesses, we get it, uh, there's one form that needs to be notarized, and you can do it that quickly, just most people <laughs> you know, do a little bit and set it aside and forget about it for a while. But, but, but to do that, you would need to have $80,000 that you could immediately be transferred to Alcor? Right, yeah. Um, I know there's a lot of people who are thinking about cryonics but aren't quite ready to commit would you would you suggest that they should probably maybe get the life insurance on their own just in case you know they develop cancer and then it, they financially couldn't afford? Absolutely, that's an excellent idea. Um, yeah, if you, I mean you can use a life insurance for something else if you decide against cryonics. Uh, there's probably be someone later in your life you like to have life insurance uh, to pay for. But if you wait and then one day you know the doctor says I've got bad news, well you're no longer going to get life insurance. There's no way. So it's and also the younger you start, of course, the lower the cost, and you have time for the value to build up. So the earlier you get the life insurance, the better. So you know what I would say to people who are, who are kind of thinking about this and think maybe get the life insurance, get a good policy, um, and become an associate member. I mean, for goodness sake, associate membership is just five dollars a month, and you get a magazine, it keeps you up to date with what what's going on, and you might also fill out this one-page form that's on our website, which is called the Declaration of Intent to be Cryopreserved. So if you know you go to that doctor and he says, I'm sorry, but you've got aggressive pancreatic cancer, you're going to be dead in five weeks. <laughs> that would be pretty awful. But if that happens, then you know you get your paperwork done. Uh, if you already have the life insurance in place, you just you know change the beneficiary or whatever. Um, it also helps in cases where we get uh, third parties calling in. We very rarely can do third parties at the last minute. Um, and actually charge a surcharge because of the extra legal risk. But if that person had been an associate member, we know, you know, one of our one of our conditions for a third-party case, if someone can't speak for themselves, is informed consent. We don't want to do this to someone who doesn't want it. But if they've you know, shown their interest by being an associate member for a certain period of time, that makes it easier for, for the board to approve them. Uh, how much would it cost, you know, a young person to get um, life insurance that could cover this, like to get $80,000 of life insurance? Do you have any idea? Yeah, no, I'm not even sure if they'll give you that, that, that little eighty thousand. Um, it will be it will be so little. I think you may have to have a little higher minimum for it to be worth their while. Um, it really depends on the policies, and I don't want to sort of make any 
formal recommendations because I'm not an insurance expert, but uh, just to point out there are different kinds. Term policies are generally not a good idea unless they're truly for a temporary period of time, like you, you know, you, you're in college, you're expecting to earn good money when you get out of college, but you want to be covered in the meantime. Term is really cheap, but it's going to run out and you end up with nothing. And I think something like 97% of all term policies never pay out. <laughs> it's a great deal for the insurance company, but they can have you know some value if you really are doing this temporarily. Um, there's whole life, there's universal life, there's index universal life, which uh, allows you to adjust the mix of investments so you have some inflation protection. Uh, whole life is probably the most expensive, but also builds up more cash value, um, which could be quite useful. Um, and then there's permanent universal life. So uh, you know, we have we have agents that we can point people to, and they can discuss the options. So um, you know, I don't want to make any any specific recommendations. It depends on someone's individual circumstances too. Sure, sure. Um, how how is Chronix how is Chronix membership worked out for people who are not U.S. citizens? Uh, well, it's getting better. Um, you know, as someone who came from England, I, I started the first European Cryonics organization back in 1986. Um, I found that Alcor had not really been doing a whole lot for people overseas because it's difficult. Uh, but because I, was, I guess because I was from England, I, I really wanted to improve what we do for people in Europe, especially, and then stretching beyond that. So what we've done right now, well, first of all, obviously Canada is, is nearby. So um, we have a kit, a full kit in Toronto uh, that includes everything from a perfusate to uh, a field neuro kit to everything basically that we need and a trained person there. That's good because we don't have to worry about going through customs and, and I'm asking, you know, what are these bags of fluid for? Why do you have these <laughs> surgical instruments and all this weird stuff? So we have that position. We're about to position one in Ottawa, another one probably in Montreal before long. So Canada will be fairly well covered. Um, in England, we have two kits. We have one in London, uh, stored with an international mortuary company, and they can basically, they, they've done cases with us before, they can get that to any country in Europe or beyond um, quite quickly. And uh, we work with Cryonics UK, who are up in the north of England, and they've helped us on actually with a case uh, just about six months ago. And they do regular trainings, they're very good, and we have another kit with them too. So. They can also do cases in England and even in, in Europe. So we have Europe pretty well covered, and we're working on improving that. Uh, we have very few members in South America yet, so we don't have much going on down there. Uh, we actually oddly have more people in Thailand. <laughs> can we have a kit there? Um, it all depends. You know, sometimes we get fairly wealthy members, and they're willing to actually pay for a whole kit, which can be quite expensive um, to be kept where they are locally. That's the case we have in Thailand. Australia is you know, so far away that although we have members there, we're quite supportive of the new organizations that are forming there because it just makes sense. At least for the initial, um, the initial procedures, I think we might be able to have an arrangement with them so that once they've done the procedures, they transport the patients on dry ice and store them here. Because if you think about it, you know, who can trust for your long-term storage? An organization that started nine months ago or one that started 45 years ago? <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Um, how, how do you handle people who have um, brain-wasting diseases like Alzheimer's? Yeah, that's that's a nightmare. Uh, first of all, with, with Alzheimer's, I have to make the point that we don't really fully understand that yet, and we don't know whether memories are permanently gone or if they're just inaccessible, or maybe there's some mixture there. I mean, you know, people often say how they go visit a relative with that kind of condition, and some days they're lucid and remember them, other days they're not which may suggest that maybe they have problems accessing memories that might still be there, or maybe they could be reconstructed. But ideally, obviously, the ideal thing would be to be able to terminate your life functions before your brain has turned to mush. Um, now if you have brain cancer, you really don't want to wait until your body gives out. You want to better just say, okay, I want to go now. Now, that obviously has been very problematic. It's getting... Well, it's not that e not really any easier now, even with the several states that allow you know, physician-assisted suicide or death with dignity, whatever you want to call it, because you have to better self-administer. Uh, you have to be within six months of death, according to two doctors. And with Alzheimer's disease, you know, they, they may not better say that. Um, the other, op the only legal option right now to sort of choose the time that you go and let us get on with with our procedures 
is to refuse food and water. And that's something you can absolutely legally do. Um, they can't force that on you. So you know, here's, here's a specific example. This wasn't a case of brain deterioration, but it was a, a case of cancer. Fred Chamberlain, a co-founder of our organization, uh, came from Florida, checked into a hospice here, and you know he, he was ready to have us get going. So uh, because he had cancer, he could he could ask for large amounts of pain medication, and so he was basically completely unconscious. And he said, "Absolutely, give me no food, no water. Don't you dare!" And they couldn't go against that. And it was kind of amazing to me. He, his body kept going for six days before his heart finally stopped. And of course, we were right there by the bedside. And the problems with Alzheimer's disease they probably aren't going to prescribe lots of pain meds because you're not necessarily going to be in a lot of pain. So you're in a bad situation. So that's a very frightening, very frightening situation. Yeah. And you also might forget that you want to die. Yeah. You might forget you want to be cryopreserved. You might, right. Yeah. And so they offer you food and water. You might say yes. And yeah. Well, yeah. one thing you can do about that and which we're trying to encourage our members to do more is to have a medical power of attorney um, I mean, if you've got serious Alzheimer's disease, then you're probably not going to be considered competent. So if you've already set up ahead of time a medical power of attorney, someone who's cryonics friendly can make those decisions in accordance with what you've instructed before. So that could help in that kind of case. Yeah. It's horrible, though, that we're making people die in a painful death when we could yeah. do it so much easier. It's barbaric, yeah. I think it gets, I mean, you see things in history that are barbarous, and we don't quite get that this is barbaric now. It's also bizarre to me that we spend so much money in the last few weeks and months of people's lives just to extend a period of suffering and misery, when if they just went a little bit sooner and were cryopreserved, it would save them, their families, and society a lot of money, and they would be preserved in a much better condition. So I think eventually people will start to see this. Yeah, I've made that argument that universal cryonics would actually save money because a lot of people with brain-wasting diseases or cancer would choose to be preserved and it would save a lot of money on medical treatment. Yeah, yeah it costs hundreds of thousands or sometimes millions of dollars to keep people going. And all for what? I mean, to me, the reason I want life is because there's things I want to do. I want to have experiences. I want to learn. I have relationships, have adventures, produce, create. But if, you, if you're wasting away of some horrible disease, you, you can't do any of those things. Just having more time is not worth anything to me. It's not really living. It's just, it's just barely existing. Right, right, especially if there's a better option. Well, um, Max, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and um, good luck you know, ex preserving and expanding Alcor. Thank you very much. And just, uh, you know, just a final word, if people go to our website, um, just uh, look at the associate membership option. We'll give them six months free, get the magazine, just think about it and uh, become part of the future. Okay. Well, well, thank you very much. Thank you, James. Okay. Bye-bye.